So we continue in our study of Philippians, bearing the marks, the marks of what or whom, the marks of being a Christian. And uh, we kind of recalled at the beginning of this, you may remember, I was talking about the Apostle Paul who penned these letters and how he ended the letter of Galatians with uh, giving them the exhortation, cause me no trouble because I bear the marks of Christ on my body. And that we too, uh, like Paul, we are to bear the marks of Christ, uh, not only on our bodies, but also in our hearts and in our actions and our, our lives and the way that we walk about in life. We as disciples, we as followers of Jesus, uh, are to bear these marks upon us. And we've talked about several of those. Today, we're going to talk about bearing the marks of unity, that one of the marks that Believers and followers of Christ have is unity. It's uh, one of the most common words of description in the New Testament of the church. Uh, Second only, I think, to the identifier of love. Jesus said they'll know that you're my disciples in the way that you love one another. And all the apostles uh, emphasize that attribute that we are to have, that the world recognizes us, the mark of love upon us. Well, second to that, probably most mentioned would be the idea of unity, that we are marked together as a people who are committed one to another and that we are unified with one faith, one baptism, one spirit, that we are not contentious with one another, but we are encouraging and uplifting of one another. And that is a recognizer. That's a neon flashing light to the world that they are amongst Christians Because they are united together with love and joy and a cause, a cause which is bigger than them. Three things we want to go over this morning. We're not going to go over all the verses. We're just going to stop at verse 30 this morning. But we want to talk about the unity of fellowship, the unity of the being and the battle together and unified with the king. So we look at these things and we understand that you and I are to be unified in fellowship. So look with me at verse 27. Chapter 1, verse 27. And Paul says, uh, in the midst of all that he's just said about living in his circumstances, what we've gone over in the last two weeks, that he's writing this letter to the Philippian church out of a Roman prison tied to a Praetorian guard. And he's talked about in these circumstances that he's in, that he is rejoicing, that he has great joy. And the reason for that is, is because the gospel is being proclaimed. He has a worldview that's larger than himself. He's not self-centered. He is Savior-centered. He is uh, completely compelled by the the Savior. He is uh, immersed in him, and his whole life is uh, by a compulsion dedicated to the expansion of the kingdom of Christ. So much so that he decides that even though it would be better for him to die and be with Christ, that he would endure the Roman prison longer, that he might be of service to Christ and see his glory and his kingdom grow. And so that we see this apostle, this wonderful evangelist say, the glory of Christ is more important to me than my own personal comfort, my own conditions, my own circumstances. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And now he turns his focus and saying, watch, this is what, how I live out life. This is my worldview. Now, Philippian church and thereby East Glenville church. Let's talk about you. And so he starts with verse 27. He says, 
Only this, in light of everything, only this, let your manner be a life, uh, let the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come or see or absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Unity and fellowship. Paul uses uh, an interesting Greek word here that I'm not going to even begin to try to pronounce. Uh, Even though I I know the word, you'll laugh at me. Um, Well, I'll try. Polylactusaeus. Was that close, Phil? Okay, thanks. Um, So when Paul says here, let the manner of your life... That's the word that he's using. He only uses this word in one other place in the New Testament. And it's way back in Acts chapter 23 in the first verse. It's a political expression. And what he's saying to the Philippian church is let your life reflect that you're of a different citizenship. That you're from a different country. As you live out your life in the world and the context of which you find yourself, you are to live that life out in a manner that tells that world you don't belong to them. That you are completely contrary to the ways that they do things. It's interesting that he uses this in the Philippian church and to the church of Philippi because the Philippian church Philippi was known as Little Rome. It was on the sort of the outskirts of the Roman Empire And Roman centurions and Roman colonels and generals, after they had done their service, normally went there to retire because it was such a great outpost of the Roman Empire. It was a great place for the Roman people to live. And in the midst of those people, you find a group of Christians that Paul is saying, in that culture, in that environment, live a life that they understand you're not one of them. but that you're one of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's not true for just individual Christians. That's not true for just one of the Philippians within the church. It was true for the entire church of Philippi. It's true for everyone who says, I'm a follower of Jesus. You and I have a Holy Spirit command that we are to live lives as though we belong somewhere else. I wonder, do our co-workers hear and see someone that they're very familiar with in the culture or someone that astonishes them in, they, in the way that they live as a foreigner in a common land. Do your co-workers see someone who lives by a different set of rules and morals than the rest of the world? You see, you and I are united together within this fellowship in one citizenship Paul in Ephesians talked about that we are citizens of heaven. That you and I are marked and sealed as strangers and aliens, as Peter would say, in a land as citizens of heaven. I wonder, 
Are you more comfortable with the identity that you have in the world? Are you more comfortable with the identity you have at the throne of Christ? Before you answer too quickly, it's time for us to have a reality check. To live comfortably before the throne of Christ by necessity means we will have discomfort in this culture. To live in comfort before the throne of Christ means by necessity that we will think more of the Savior and how we are to respond as the Savior would have us respond to in the context of which we find ourselves than in the way we would do it normally ourselves. That we are to be more Savior-consumed than self-consumed. That this is what Jesus calls his followers to. The kind of life that he beckons us to and commands us to come into. That the way he calls us to behave. The way he calls us to interact. The way he calls us to live out. By necessity will cause discomfort to our flesh. And discomfort to the world around us. We should not so casually go through the motions of Christianity thinking that somehow it means personal comfort in this world. Now this is not a church building message. But it is a true message. It's not the message you may hear that comes out of Houston, Texas, that God is concerned with your happiness. God is not concerned with your happiness. God is concerned in you receiving his righteousness. God is concerned with the ultimate outcome of making you look like Jesus. And that every circumstance in your life and in my life, every relationship, both in the church and outside the church, every place of your broken heart and your broken life and every success that you have are meant for one purpose and one purpose only, and that's that you might look like Jesus. And the ultimate outcome of being identified with him and not with the world. And this is a unifying message from the Holy Spirit to everyone who says, I follow Jesus. We are in this boat together. It is why God did not leave us as orphans. It's why he put the church together on earth. Whether it's the church in East Glenville or the church in Jacksonville, Florida, or the church in Anaheim, California. 
We are one church with one Lord, with one spirit to do the work of Christ. And that work is so hard sometimes, so challenging at times, so uh, bruising at times, because we live so contrarian to the world in which we live that we need each other. A religious country club does not need each other. An ingrown church will not need one another. But a church that is striving to share the gospel in a foreign land will desperately depend one upon the other no matter where you are located. You and I are not put together to have a club that sings nice songs and hears a good positive message. We are put together to strive together for the glory of Christ and the expansion of his kingdom. That we might rely upon one another. We might encourage one another. We might lift one another up. We would pray for one another. We would compliment one another. We would come alongside one another. And in unity and one faith, we would stand against the dark world together. You and I are put together this day right now in this hour for that purpose. To follow Christ is to be united together. It takes trust and it takes courage to have one's citizenship in a foreign land. Paul says to them, I want you to do this whether I'm in absence or whether I'm present. I want to hear that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Not only is there unity of fellowship, but we need to be also unified in understanding we're in a battle. Unified in a battle. In verse 28, Paul says this, And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them that they're destru- that of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Understand, followers, you're in a battle. I'm in a battle. If we, if we think somehow and, and have that ostrich philosophy of putting our head in the sand and thinking all is okay, like the ostrich, we will be hit in a particular part of our anatomy that will be painful. Think about that. It'll come to you in just a minute. We as a church must lift our heads out of the sand collectively and understand that we have an enemy. And the enemy wants this church right here at this address destroyed. He wants to see this church fall apart. He wanted the Philippian church to fall apart. There were two guys there in Philippi, Eurotius 
and Syntyche. And they were having a conflict with one another. And their conflict was causing conflict in the church. And it was like yeast in bread. It was spreading. And sides were being drawn up. And, and gossip was happening. And people were talking about one another. And whose side are you on? The number one tool that our enemy uses against the church is discouragement, which leads to division. And division leads to factions. And factions lead to separation. And factions that separate lead to disunity, not unity. Beloved, we must understand it isn't people that are our enemy, but it is the devil himself. That your fight and my fight, as Paul would say, is not against flesh and blood. Your disagreements that you have should not be with people, but with the enemy who is directing division and factions within the body of Christ. It's nothing new. You remember in Corinthians, the fourth chapter, right? Some say I follow Paul. Some say I follow Apollos. It's equivalent to some saying I follow Phil and some say I follow Brad. Equivalent to saying I follow the elders or I follow some other group. I follow the bridge players and I follow the canasta players. Don't you see how the enemy uses that to divide and to conquer, to create factions, to undermine the work of Christ within his body? You must understand, I must understand that you and I are in a battle. And that there is an enemy that would seek to undo us and destroy us and divide us and discourage us. A few months ago, almost a year ago, in one of our elder board meetings, after we had gone through a season of long prayer and seeking God and and asking God what would he have for this church to do, how can this church be more intentional about moving out into the community with the gospel? How would you call us out, God? How would you gift us? Where are the places you want us to go? What are the things that you want us to do? How can we become an ongoing concern for another 60 years in the East Glenville community? And after a lot of prayer and a lot of seeking God and a lot of following God, the elders have come together and and worked together in collegiality and in unity. And I told them there at that meeting, I said, if this is really where we're going to go, if this is really where you men want to lead, understand this, the devil will attack it as soon as possible. And the way he will attack it is by division. It is the way he does it in every single church. It is how the enemy operates. Why? Because of the very first point of the sermon. Because you and I are called to be in unity together. And the best way to destroy us and weaken us is to bring disunity amongst us.
Because it's the DNA of those who follow Christ to be unified together because we are within this battle together. Not separate. Some of you remember the comedian Emo? Some of you are not old enough to remember the comedian. Don't shake your head, Brittany. It's embarrassing. You just don't, you're too old to remember. So I remember this thing with Emo, and he was doing a little thing, a little funny thing. He was talking about uh, running into this guy uh, at a conference, and he said, uh, you know, I know you from somewhere. He said, yeah. He said, you, you go to church where I go to church sometimes. He goes, yeah. He says, so what flavor of, of uh, Christian are you? And he said, well, I'm a Protestant. I am too. What, what kind of Protestant are you? And he, he said, are you, are you Northern Baptist or are you Southern Baptist? And he said, well, I'm Northern Baptist. I am too. He said, well, what conference of the Northern Baptist Church are you out of? Are you out of the Northern Conservative Baptist Conference of 1896? No, I'm from the Northern Baptist Conference of Conservatives of 1912. Die, heretic. (laughs) But isn't that how we often behave with one another? Over little things that are not essential to the faith. It was Augustine that said unity in the essentials, liberty in the non-essentials, charity in the non-essentials. You and I must determine what is essential to the battle, and we must be unified there. And those things which are non-essential, we need to allow charity. We need to give love. We must understand that we are to be unified in fellowship, unified in the battle, and then also we must understand we are unified with the king. In verse 29 through the 30th, Paul says this, For it has been granted to you, been granted to all y'all, all of you sitting here in the pews this morning, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here I still have. There's another church building verse. That you have been granted the privilege... Of not only believing in Christ, it is Christ who has called you to himself. It is Christ who has placed himself upon your heart and upon my heart and invited us in to be united with him. And also that we, while we are strangers and aliens living in conflict with a world in which we are contrary to, we get to suffer as well. It's exciting, huh? But let's think about that for just a moment. 
What does that mean? For Paul, Paul was so consumed with Jesus. Paul was so centered on Christ. Paul was so enamored with his glory that he even saw the whelps that he would receive from a whip as manifestations of the whips that Jesus had received. That as Jesus received the lashing, Paul received the lashing. And it brought Paul great joy to realize that in this suffering I'm identified with Jesus. In this world, because I know in the world to come, I will be as equally identified with the King of Kings and the Lord of all Lords. And so no matter what my circumstances are, no matter the pain, no matter the context, no matter what's going on in this world, everything that happens to Paul and happens to you and I is in the context of identifying with Jesus. You see, it's the point of God, not that you and I are always happy, but that we have the righteousness of Christ. Isn't it good to know that every tear that you shed has purpose and meaning? It's not wasted salt water. That those things that make us scratch our head at 3 o'clock in the morning going, Why, God, why? I don't understand. God says, I know. But trust me, I'm using it to make you look like me. All those places of victory that we have where we have a joy and we realize we can't even feel the full expression of joy. There's something within us that will not allow us to go fully and deeply into joy. We realize we're made for a different place. That our hearts aren't able to consume and to conceive of the greatest joy because we're not home yet. In our pain, in our failures, and in the places where we fall, in the brokenness of our lives, God is there using it, making you and I to look like Jesus. In the places of victory, in the places of joy, in the places where we think we're doing really well, God's using it to make us look like Jesus. Why? Because this most mysterious, wonderful truth is yours and mine and only exclusive to those who follow Jesus. And it's called being united with him. That you and I are inextricably and inseparably in the context and connected to Christ. We are interwoven into the being of who Jesus is and it cannot be undone. And so that everything that Christ experienced in this world is a manifestation of our identifying with him. He's using all things together for good, as Paul would say to the Roman church. The places where I limp, he will make me to run. The places where I'm on my face, he will lift me up. The places where I raise my hands in glory, he is beside me with an approving smile. Whether in victory or in failure, 
my Savior smiles over me because he's making me look like him. I've had a couple of surgeries on my left arm. Got a big gash around my wrist, one that goes up my arm like this. Got a couple on my side. Looked like I've been in a bad knife fight and I lost. And I and I thought for a long time I did lose. Until Jesus came to me in my heart and said, The day's coming, son. The day is coming. You're going to stand before me and I'm going to hold out my wrist and I'm going to tell you, see, you look just like me. The day is coming for you with every scar that you have, with every bruise that you've received, with every place on your broken heart, every place in your life that has never made sense. You will stand before your Savior and He's going to say, See, you look just like me. That is why Paul was exhorting the Philippian church, stay in one mind, stay in one spirit, be unified in the fellowship that you have. Don't draw up sides, don't draw into factions, don't bite one another. Encourage one another, lift one another up, compliment one another, find reasons to build each other up. Because the world that you and I live in wants nothing more than to tear us down. And the enemy who rules over that world wants nothing more than the defeat of every church that follows Jesus. Why? Because we are united to the King. Don't despair. Don't be discouraged. Lift your head up. You're going to look just like Him. Let's pray.